I want to get started this morning, though, with a bit of an interactive exercise. And in order for this to work, um, I really kind of do need you to participate. So I put a three by five card on every, on every chair. So I want to just ask you a simple question. I'm going to give you a minute to write something on that card. There's a, a pen somewhere near you in the seat backs, um, and uh, if they, they might even work. Uh, so here's what I want to do. I just want to ask you a simple question. I want you to write the answer to this question on your card. And here's the thing. No one's going to see this card, okay? You, you can take, it's for you to take home. It's just between you and God. And, and if you're like, well, what's the point then? Just play along, if you would. Just humor me, okay? And I think you'll see the point in a few minutes. So here's the question. <clears throat> Every once in a while, as followers of Jesus, God will nudge us out of our comfort zones into arenas of life and into circumstances and into opportunities that we are not comfortable with. And oftentimes, our problem in these situations is not that we're not willing. It's not that we're not willing as much as we feel like we're unable. We're like, you know, God, I'd be happy to do this, but this is beyond me. I don't know how to go about this. And every once in a while, in order for God to accomplish his kingdom purposes, every once in a while, God's going to come to you and say, here's an opportunity. Here's an assignment. I want you to go out there and I want you to do this. So right now, for about a minute, to the best of your ability, what is that thing you believe God is nudging you to do? Nudging you to trust him, nudging you to take a leap of faith, nudging you to leave a comfort zone. What is that one thing in your life right now? We're going to take about a minute and we're going to play some music. Thank you for doing that. Just hold on to that for now. In the spring of 1995, how many of you remember that? It was longer ago than you think. I'm just saying. I was, here's how old it was, how long ago it was. I was 26 years old. I was a full-time, do the math, you can do the math. I was a full-time youth pastor. Our church uh, had a Christian school. About 95% of the teens who made up the core of that youth ministry attended our Christian school, including a f- couple of you in this room. Um, early on in my time in that role, actually just looking at the room, like I counted about 10 people in the room, I think, who I knew then it, when I'm t- for this era and I'm telling the story. So you can, if I'm embellishing, just be quiet. So early, early on in my time in that role, I made a very conscious decision to embrace the idea of a ministry uh, primarily geared to teens in a Christian school. 
because uh, I, I, I grew up and graduated from a Christian school. I had volunteered in Christian schools while I was in college. I helped start a Christian school in Alaska. It really was my world, so it just kind of made sense. And one of the highlights of my Christian school experience was going to uh, uh, attending an annual convention of Christian school high school students. These conventions were held in every region in North America and actually around the world at the time. Our school was, growing up, our school was in the Annapolis Valley of Nova Scotia, very, very rural area dominated by farming, fishing, and tourism. So it was a really big deal for us uh, to go to these conventions in cities like St. John and Fredericton and Moncton with a couple hundred students and compete in academics and sports and fine arts and performing arts like speech and music. In my sophomore year, my... Uh, Classmates and I competed in our regional convention in Moncton, New Brunswick. That was in 1983. And we qualified to participate in the international convention, which was in Texas that year at uh, what is now the University of North Texas. I had no idea that about 18 months later, our family would move to Louisville, Texas, about 15 minutes away from, that, from where that convention took place. Anyway, th that convention was a highlight of my uh, high school experience with over 5,000 students there at this convention. We took over the university campus for five days. We lived in the dorms. Some of us got work scholarships in the cafeteria. We had evening rallies in the football stadium. Uh, my dad was one of the deans of the, one of the dorms, and my best friend and I got to be his gophers for the week running all over the campus. Never forget the evening that uh, an evening rally was cut short because of a tornado warning, and we didn't know any, have any idea what that was. We were from Nova Scotia, and so we were all told to go back to our dorms, and so dad thought it would be a, a good idea to take advantage of this downtime to have my friend Blair and I run across campus and run a couple errands for him. We had no idea why the sirens were going. We just thought somebody's in trouble, I guess. We didn't realize it was us, but uh, so we had no idea what a tornado warning was. So a few years later, I find myself on a staff in a church with a Christian school, and I thought it would be great uh, for, to give those students an opportunity to participate in the same kind of regional convention that I grew up in. Who knows, maybe even qualify for the international. So in the spring of 91, we took our first group of students to our regional convention in Scroon Lake, New York. I think there were eight students on that trip, along with Alethea and I, our 20, their 22-year-old chaperones. I don't know what your parents were thinking. But anyway, uh, we chaperoned that trip for six years, um, along with Galen and Lisa. We had a few of those together. Um, the <laughs> there are a couple of faces in there you might know. The last two or three years, we brought about 25 students. And then in 1995, we took about a dozen students to the International Convention, which just happened to be back at the University of North Texas. So back up a little bit. In 1994, which I think is this picture, uh, from our fourth year to attend, we had, uh, I don't know, 18 or 20 students there. We were starting to make our presence known at this event, and we think it has something to do with our chartered bus with TVs in it. And because, uh, like, for Christian school students to have access to Disney movies was kind of a big deal. And so, uh, we, there we, yes, those aren't all our kids. I don't know who half those kids are. They just hopped on our bus, and we, we bust them around. Well, I've been talking with the convention coordinator who we knew through some connections in this network of schools, and I remember talking with him about my frustrations of what I saw as a bit of a, a missed opportunity in our evening rallies. They, they invited four different speakers, different speaker each night, no cohesive theme. I felt, I mean, I felt like the speakers were too old for this group. I, was, I mean, I was 24 at this point. I had some answers. So they were pretty, I just felt they were pretty much out of touch their messages weren't really finding any place to land. I felt like we needed to do a better job of finding the right speakers to connect with these students. And so that was the tone of that conversation. So you can probably guess what happened. He invited me to speak. 
So there are four evening rallies. So he asked dad to speak at the first two, and I would speak at the last two. I'm 26 years old, and I was a youth pastor. Um, by the way, yeah, there's a picture of dad, because uh, when you're the group photographer, you aren't actually in any pictures. So there's no evidence that you were actually there. But dad was there. So anyway, um, so at the, at the time, I was a youth pastor, which meant I got to preach in our church about every other month on a Sunday night for about 18 minutes, because that's about as long as I could preach. Preaching was not what I did. Um, oh, I'd been directing and speaking at a small uh, teen camp in Nova Scotia for a few years, but at that point, but this was different. I mean, this was 600 high school students, Christian high school students. That's a tough audience, I just want you to know. Uh, all their, and all of their stuffy, condescending chaperones, right? So without even thinking about it in this conversation, I accepted. I mean, I figured, hey, I got a year to prepare. I can come up with something. I learned to preach before then. So, so here's what happened. We arrive on campus the next year. Dad preaches the first two nights. There's the photographic evidence. Uh, the morning of day three rolls around, and I start to feel a little intimidated. I started to wonder if, first of all, what am I doing opening my mouth? I, 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 am not, I, don't, I don't belong in this situation. I started to wonder if I really was the right person for the job. The convention director and I had agreed that it was time to make a change in the speakers, and, and at, at the time he thought I might be a part of the solution. He'd never heard me speak. No, not many people had, but I agreed with him. Yes, I think I'm part of the solution. Now it's Wednesday morning, and I'm really beginning to wonder. I would like to have stayed in my room all day, and once I unfolded from a fetal position, it would have been nice to have some study time, some cram time, uh, might have boosted my confidence a little bit, but I had other responsibilities. We had 25 students there. I needed, they needed to be escorted to all these various events. I had a volleyball team to coach. I wanted to watch our basketball team. I, mean, I had people who needed me, and so I just had to go with what I had prepared and trust that God had led me in my preparation back home and just go with it. So I wish I could tell you that my messages those two nights led to a best-selling book and accompanying book tour and talk show appearances. The truth is, I don't remember any of it. I don't remember what I spoke on. I don't remember a lot at all. It was mostly an out-of-body experience for me. Here's my point. Every once in a while, God nudges us out of our comfort zones into arenas of life and into circumstances and into opportunities that we are not comfortable with. And oftentimes, our problem in these situations is not that we're not willing. It's not that we're not willing as much as that we feel like we're unable. So every once in a while, in order for God to accomplish his kingdom purposes, every once in a while, God's going to come to me, and then God's going to come to you, and sometimes as a group, and sometimes as a church, and say, here's an opportunity. Here's an assignment. I want you to go out there and do this. And our natural tendency is to look at our resources, look at our abilities, look at our talents, look at our experiences, and say, well, in light of all that, you got the wrong man. You got the wrong woman. You got the wrong teenager. Like, I'm willing, but I'm the wrong person for the job because I just can't. I'm not able to do what you're asking me and calling me to do. I don't have the ability. I don't have the resources. I don't have the skill set. I don't have the training. And I hate to say no, uh, but I'm going to have to decline, God. So thank you, but this is beyond me. <clears throat> Sometimes it might be something that you come across in Scripture. Sometimes it's a relational thing. Sometimes it's just an internal thing that you know, I can't really describe, but you just kind of know when God's pushing you outside your comfort zone. 
For some of you, maybe it's a relationship thing. It could be a relationship that God wants you to start, or maybe that God wants you to bump up a notch, or maybe just God wants you to change the, the nature of that relationship. For some of you, maybe it's your relationship with your husband or your wife. It's time to start talking about some stuff in your marriage. Um, for some of you, maybe it's a relationship with your kids. It's time to have some conversations maybe that are long overdue. It's time to take that relationship to another place uh, and, and go maybe where you've never gone before in your relationship with your kids. Maybe God wants you to talk with somebody about their relationship with God, and you're like, oh, no, not me. I'm not, I can't do that, so I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pray for them. I will pray for them, and I will treat them well. I'll be the nicest person they know. I will serve them, but I can't bring that up. I mean, I don't know what to do with that. Like, what if they ask me a question or about, I don't know, something I don't know about evolution or some, why I have that political sign in my yard or whatever. I don't have the answers, and since I don't have the answers, uh, I really am not the person for the job. God, thanks for thinking of me. That's for somebody else. I'll just treat them nice in the meantime. I think that's probably what God would want for me because I'm willing, uh, but I'm unable. I'm not good with words. I'm not smart enough. I'm not a good reader. I don't know what I'm talking about, so maybe in time, uh, maybe I'll ask them about it someday. Maybe God's nudging you about something like a job change. Maybe you've been in a job so long and you think that's what defines you. You're like, my name is and I'm a, and you fill in the blank and it's tied to your job. For the most part, like maybe things are going great, and you don't have that many issues in your job. But every once in a while, maybe you're laying in bed at night thinking, and you feel like maybe God's beginning to nudge you to give you a vision for something different. And you're willing, but, but you're like, I'm not, I'm not so sure like, how that's going to work out. I've done this for so long, I'm not sure I can learn anything new. I'm pretty secure here. This idea of leaving this kind of scares me. I don't know if I can do that. <clears throat> what are we supposed to do? as followers of Jesus, when God nudges us beyond our comfort zones to begin to embrace and tackle situations and opportunities and relationships that are beyond us. That's what I want to talk about for a few minutes today, because I guarantee you this, you've either been through this, you're going through this, you will go through it, because God is constantly using our circumstances where our faith and His faithfulness intersect, and it's in that intersection where we know and experience God. It's in that intersection that we discover God for who He is, and, for, and as long as we're just kind of sitting back in what's familiar and comfortable, oftentimes we miss out on God. Maybe someone misses out on what God would like to do through us. So fortunately, we're not the first group of people to wrestle with this. If you have your Bible, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew 14 is the beginning of two stories. And if you grew up in church, you've heard both of these stories, but you probably never heard them connected. And yet they happen in a very connected way. So here's what's happened. Jesus was going to try to teach the disciples what to do when they're given an impossible task, right? That was his goal. Uh, so what he did is he illustrated it with one incident. And then he tested them on what he taught them. So these two incidents really go together. And in the book of Mark, as we'll see in a few minutes, Mark gives us a different spin on the whole situation to help us see how these two things are connected. So in this first scenario, Jesus illustrates the principle of here's what to do when you're called to do the impossible. And in the second incident, he gives them a test to see if they know how to apply what they've just learned. So we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 14, about halfway through the chapter in verse 15. Uh, Jesus had just finished teaching. It's getting late. The people are hungry. Disciples decide it's time to send the people away so they can get something to eat. So verse 15 of Matthew 14 says, as evening approached, so it's probably around three or four in the afternoon, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Verse 16, Jesus replied, 
They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Long pause. I think Jesus probably had to look away to keep from laughing. Because <laughs> the disciples are like, oh, okay, yeah, we have, why didn't we think of that? We'll give them something to eat. Uh, Jesus, hello. Like there's thousands of people here. So Jesus uh, sort of sets up this dilemma, this tension, and essentially gives them an impossible task. He's like, you guys uh, feed them so they don't need to be sent away. And here's what's interesting to me is we read the whole story, and then at the end of the story, we find out how many people we're talking about. So just spoiler alert, it's 5,000 men plus women and children, okay? Verse 17, these are the disciples. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. So in other words, like, we're not going to argue with you about this. Like, we are willing to do what you've asked us to do. But as we examine our resources, we've only got a little bit of bread and a couple fish. And in other words, we don't have the resources necessary to do what you are asking us to do. We're not saying no to you. We're just saying we can't. It's impossible. So now Jesus has them uh, exactly where he wants them and he begins to teach the lesson, verse 18. He's like, well, bring them here to me. In other words, bring to me what you do have. Like your limited resources, bring them to me. Bring me all your resources says, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. Verse 20, they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Oh, and by the way, the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. See what happened here? Jesus said, I know you don't have the resources. I know. I know you don't have the resources to do what I'm asking you to do. So just hand them over to me. And Jesus takes the bread and the fish and he prays and he asks God to bless them. And he hands them back to the disciples. And he's like, now go distribute this food to the people. So they start distributing this food. And at the end of the process, everybody's not only had enough to eat, but everybody, and everybody's satisfied, but they had food left over. And here are Jesus' disciples looking at each other and they're like, wow, like that was cool. Like, look what we did. Look what... We slash he did. Like, that was so cool. Like, who, like, who did that exactly? Did we do that? Did, we, did he do it? I don't even know how this works. Like, I, it doesn't really matter because this is really cool. And they're still trying to figure out. Look at the next verse. Verse 22 says, Immediately, <laughs> Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. So while the disciples are still trying to figure out what just happened, Jesus has given them, and he's already given them in this illustration of what he wants to teach them, and now he's going to test them because he's given them an impossible task. Feed these people. It's like, we don't have enough food. We don't have the resources. Well, give me your resources. Give me what you have. Now, here you go. You do it now. And then while they're still trying to figure it out, Jesus is like, I want you to get in the boat, sail over to the other side of the lake. I'll see you on the other side uh, in a little while. Um, but what they didn't know is that he'd just given them a second impossible task. So they get in the boat. It's about a six to eight mile crossing, depending on where they started from and where they're going, but it's about six to eight miles. They've done this many times. They're fishermen. Most of them, are, a bunch of them are fishermen. It's not a big deal. Um, we do this all the time. So they get in the boat. They start to row or sail. Uh, they're probably rowing across the lake. And they're all talking about this incredible thing that just happened. And Matthew, like he's not a sailor. He's the white collar guy in the bunch. He's got his notebook out writing all this down, you know, because who knows, he might write a book someday. And about the time they get out in the lake, the wind comes up. And it's not a storm, it's just a strong wind, and it's a headwind. Matthew says the boat was, was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And the harder they rowed, the harder the wind blew. 
This trip wasn't supposed to take that long, maybe a couple hours at the most, and the wind starts to blow. Now, remember, it's late in the day. They were going to send the crowd home because it was three or four in the afternoon, and that was a few hours ago, right? By now, the sun has set. So here they are out on the lake in familiar waters, rowing as hard as they could, and they couldn't make any headway because Jesus has just asked them to do a second impossible thing, hoping they're going to connect these two incidents and learn a lesson. So here's what happens, verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat, go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone. The boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So there's Jesus praying by himself. Here's his guys out there. You know, we're going to do what Jesus said. You know, uh, we're just going to row across the lake. We'll meet him over there. They're out in the middle of the lake. The wind's so strong, they can't make any progress. Verse 25. Shortly before dawn, so other translations might say fourth, during the fourth watch, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. So remember, they set out probably around sundown. They should have arrived in a couple of hours, but now it's nearly dawn. They're still out in the, on the lake. So they've probably been out there for 8 to 10 hours on what should have been a two-hour trip. It's pitch black. They're soaking wet. Matthew's put his notebook away because now he's seasick because this isn't his thing. And then something very unusual and unexpected happens. Verse 25, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Mark adds an interesting detail. Mark wasn't an eyewitness, by the way. Mark got his eyewitness accounts from Peter, which is interesting because this story like, seems to make Peter the hero, uh, but then not so much. So uh, Mark writes that Jesus wasn't just walking on the lake. It says that Jesus walked past them. So you got to get this picture, right? It, it's, like, it's like they're just out there and they're, they're just struggling to make any progress and it's dark and it's windy and it's just nasty and, and they, they just notice this figure over here. He's past them. Walking on the water. They're like, wait, we've been out here struggling for hours. We're soaking wet. We can't even hold on to our oars anymore. We're exhausted. And Jesus is walking on the water and if that's not weird enough, he's making better time than we are right? He, he told us to meet us on the other side, but this is ridiculous. When they see Jesus, they're not sure it's Jesus. They think it's a ghost because apparently that was a common kind of thing that people believed in. And, and these aren't cowards. These are brave, uh, brave men, right? Experienced fishermen. They're in their element. This is what they do. But they see Jesus out on the water and they're scared to death. So when we picture this scene, I don't know about you, but this is what I tend to picture because this is what I was first taught growing up. That's what I picture. That, um, if you're familiar with flannel graph, um, how's your therapy going? But uh, so this is, this is Sunday school back in the day, flannel graph version of Jesus walking on the water. I love that one. Um, or at the very least, at least, maybe they pictured this, right? Like this one, yeah. So because everywhere Jesus walked, he had this like perfect backlighting. I don't know how that worked exactly, but it's kind of a cool thing that everything's perfectly in balance. His, his, his robe is like flowing just right. No, I think it's more like this. I'll just kind of darken that out. There you go. It's more like, do you see something out there? I think I see something out there. What could possibly be out there? Do you see it? I'm not seeing things, right? Do you see it? I think I see something. And they saw this dark, unlit object moving across the top of the water. And they're squinting in the darkness, trying to make out like, what is it that they're looking at. And as this form gets closer... And as it passes them, they realize it's the form of a man, and, and, and they're, they're stuck. They can't make any forward progress. It's not like they're getting out of there, and they're scared to death. Do you know why they're scared to death? Well, first of all, because they're not expecting Jesus. 
Apparently, Jesus is the furthest thing from their minds. So Jesus shows up, and they're, surp- they're surprised. Here's what the text says, verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. So from this ghostly figure, they hear a familiar voice that says, Don't be afraid, it's me. And at that moment, it hits Peter what the point of all this is. He's like the only one that gets it. And suddenly, as soon as they realize it's Jesus and he's coming closer now, I guess maybe he's looped back around to meet them, and suddenly Peter gets it. He's like, wait a minute. He says to us, feed the people. And we can't feed the people because all we have is this little lunch. And he's like, let me have it. And we give him what we have, and then he gives it back to us, and we do what we know to do, which is to break it up and pass it out. And somehow, by us giving him our resources, all the people get fed. Oh, and then he says, get in the boat and row across the lake. I'll meet you later. And he knows we aren't going to make it against this headwind. And all of a sudden, we're not capable to do what he's called us to do. And then Peter puts it together. And he looks out to Jesus in verse 28 and says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Like, Jesus, if that's you, I want you to ask me to do something impossible. Go ahead. Like, Peter didn't just jump into the water. And say, you know, Jesus, if that's you, save me, because this will be a cool story to tell. He's like, Jesus, if that's you, I want you to ask me to do what's impossible. I want you to call me out, to do something that I, you know I don't have the ability to do. Because I think I'm getting it. I think I'm seeing the connection. This whole day now is all kind of coming together. I'm beginning to, piece to, to put the pieces together. I, I'm going to test my theory right now in front of all my friends. If that's you, call me. So here's what happens, verse 28. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you in the water. Like, it's got to be your idea, right? If you call me, then I think I understand what you're trying to teach us. Verse 29, come, he said. If you grew up hearing this story, you wonder, like, what, what was with all of this? Like, why did Peter even come up with this? Why did he ask Jesus to call him? What is this about? What this is about was Jesus trying to teach a principle. And Peter was the first to understand the principle. And the principle is this, that when God calls you to do something, when God makes his will known to you, once you know it is the call of God, once you know it is the will of God, you can rest assured you will be provided with the resources of God. When God calls you to do something, you'll be provided with the resources of God. Because the will of God is always accomplished with the resources of God. Oh, and the call of God is always accomplished by the power of God. When God calls us to do something, something unusual, When God calls us to do something outside of our comfort zone and beyond our ability, the kind of thing where we say, you know, God, I'm willing. I'm just just not able. I think you got the wrong person. Like, I'm not trying to, I'm not rebelling. I just don't think I can. What we have to remember and what Jesus was trying to teach the disciples, what Peter puts together uh, is God's call on your life. When God begins to nudge you outside your comfort zone, when he says, I want you to get out of the boat, That along with that call, God always provides the resources and God always provides the power for us to accomplish what he's called us to do. So what did Peter do? Peter did exactly what he knew how to do. Verse 29, Peter got down out of the boat, (laughs) walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Do you know what Peter knew about walking on the water? Nothing! absolutely zero. But you know what he knew how to do? He knew how to get out of the boat and he knew how to walk. So he swung his legs out over the side and he began to walk. That's all he knew how to do. 
And he discovered in that moment that the thing Jesus was trying to teach all of his disciples, that Jesus is constantly bringing us to as believers, is this. That when God calls you to do something, he waits for us to do what we know how to do, and then God does what only God can do. With the call of God come the resources of God, the will of God comes the power of God to do what God's called us to do. The problem is this. The problem is, I think the older we get, the more successful we get, the more secure we get, the more influence maybe we gain, the more stuff we have. We just don't like to get out of the boat. We're like, come on, Jesus, like, I got an idea, I got an idea. Why don't, instead, why don't you come on over here? <laughs> why don't you come on over and get in the boat with me, right? Like, I don't need to go out there where you are. Uh, I mean, I finally got the boat just the way I want it. Uh, it's all, like, organized and polished. I mean, it looks good, and all the kids are doing great, and I got myself, you know, uh, a guy or a girl or whatever. I got this job. I'm secure. I'm finally stable. I'm comfortable here, Jesus. So why don't, why don't here's an idea. Why don't you just get in the boat with me? Because, like, I know how to do life in the boat. I don't know how to walk on the water. And every once in a while in my life and in your life, a father in heaven is going to say, we're going to do something different here. I want to take you relationally where you've never been. I want to use you in a way that you've never imagined. I want to demonstrate my power in your life in ways that you've never experienced or even imagined. I just need you to swing your legs over the side of the boat and start walking toward me. But God, I don't, I, don't, I don't know how. It seems impossible. And God's like, I know. But remember, my call is always accompanied by my resources. And just because you don't have what it takes, that's not relevant. What's relevant is I've called you. This is my idea. Now come to me. And your faith, listen, when it intersects with my faithfulness, things will be different. And you'll know me, experience me in a brand new way. Um, I think the reason that you and I have been in churches where there's not a lot going on, uh, the reason there's always a danger that this could become a church where there's nothing going on is because when God calls you to climb out of the boat, staying in the boat doesn't require the power of God. It doesn't take a miracle to just row the boat. The power of God is only available to us, this is what I've learned, outside of our comfort zones. The church that is no longer trying to accomplish something that requires the spirit and the power of God, like why should God show up there? I think one of the dangers that we have to face as a church is that we would become so successful, however we define success, or so comfortable that we think we got this thing figured out. We got this under control. God, thanks for getting us started here. We can take it from here. We know what we're doing now. What a tragedy that would be. Because the power of God is only present where the power of God is needed. And every once in a while, God says, I want you to get out of the boat. I want you to do the unusual. I want you to do the unexpected. I want you to do what seems impossible. And you can trust me that once you swing your legs over the side and once you do what you know how to do, you can trust me to do what only I can do. Because the resources of God are always available to the person in the church that responds to the call of God. I'm just telling you, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen in your life. You're going to experience these moments when you have to decide, do I step out of the boat or do I stay right here where I'm comfortable? In fact, when I think about the future of this church and the direction of this church and where God wants us to go over the next few months and into this new year, 
I'm convinced he's going to call some of us to get out of the boat for the first time. He's going to call us as a church to get out of the boat, this boat that we've worked so hard to make really comfortable and we got it just right. Because every once in a while, God is going to say to us, he's going to say to me, he's going to say to you, relationally, financially, in our business, in our family, in our service, whatever it might be, he's going to say, I want you to trust me. I'm going to, I'm going to give you an impossible assignment. Don't measure your chances for success by your own limited resources. Look at the chances of success through my resources, because the call of God is always accompanied by the resources of God. And our responsibility isn't to see through circumstances to figure out how things are going to work out. Our responsibility in those occasions is to do what we know to do and to trust God to do what only God can do. So let me ask you, what is it for you? The reason I like the story isn't even the part that I've read so far. The reason I like the story is the way it ends. Because the thing I always second guess myself about, maybe you do too, is like, what if it doesn't work out? Like, what if I'm halfway into it and I do something dumb or I lose my nerve or I'm trying to, now I want to take back control of the situation? It's exactly what happened to Peter, remember? Poor Peter. He gets such a bad rap, but I think this is a misunderstood story, honestly. Here's what happens, verse 29. Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, now, can I add something to this? First of all, like we've had some serious wind here a couple times in the last few weeks. Never seen it, but I know it was there. But anyway, he saw the wind and realized, I don't know anything about wind. I'm no wind expert. Uh, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do about the wind. This wind is too much for me. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus is like, I don't think so, Pedro. You're on your own. That'll teach you not to trust me. And Peter was never heard or seen again. <laughs> oh, you are familiar with the story. Good. We laugh, but isn't that what we're afraid of? Right? Like, what if I mess it up? What if it doesn't work out? What if I never get another job as good as this one? What if I'm single the rest of my life? What if I offend someone? What if they reject me? What if I'm poor the rest of my life? I love what happens next. Verse 31. And here's this word again. Immediately... Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Here's why I think we misunderstand this story. Like, as a child, like, I remember this story. Uh, and maybe if you went to Sunday school, you remember this story too. And we were all, like, thinking the, the same thing. That, you're like, oh, poor Peter. He's, like, the only one in the boat who has the courage to get out of the boat. And, and, and Jesus is, like, oh, you have little faith. Like, he's scolding him. Why did you doubt? Shame on you. And I'm thinking, like, what about the 11 cowards in the boat? They're the ones that should be reprimanded. But this is just my spin on what I think actually happened. Do you know how I think Jesus said this? I think he said it like we say things to our little children, like when they're really little. We're like, oh, you were so close. Like, keep pedaling. Like, you could have made it. Just swing all the way through. You could have hit it. Like, like Peter, you were so close. And I'm not even talking about the cowards in the boat. Just, you, you just don't know. You just had itty-bitty faith. You still had your training wheels on. Like if you were, it's like you're just still hitting the ball off a tee. Like if you just had a little more faith. In fact, Peter, I'm going to give you another chance. A time is coming, Peter, when I'm going to give you some other important assignments. And I'm going to keep giving you impossible assignments until you learn to factor me into the equation and learn never to take your eyes off of me and learn never to trust in your own resources because, Peter, you were close. You were so close. I think that's Jesus' response to us when we get close. 
and we mess it up. When we get outside the boat and we're hanging out with both hands, trying to climb back in, right? And it's like Father God is going like, come on, you can do it. Trust me. Like, trust me. You don't have any idea what's waiting for you. You have no idea how I want to use you. Like, so come on, just a little bit more faith here. Then look how the story ends. Jesus saves Peter, reaches out his hand. He says, why did you doubt? Verse 32. And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. Here's how Mark ends the story. Same incident, different account. Here's what Mark says in Mark 6. It says, then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down and they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. <laughs> Their hearts were hardened. They never saw the connection between you don't have what it takes. I'm going to take what you have. I'm going to give it back to you. Now you go do the impossible. They never saw the connection. They just didn't see it. Peter was the only one who got it. It's like, I think I, I, think I understand this. Like, if you'll call me out, then, then I, will, I will do what I know to do, and I will trust you to do what only you can do. So I, th- I think I get it, Jesus. The issue is not my limited resources. The issue is God has called me, and that's all I need to know. God's call is always accompanied by God's resources, and God's will is accompanied by His power. And our responsibility is simply to throw our legs over the side of the boat and walk in His direction and to trust Him to do what we cannot do on our own. One of the things that God has called us to do as followers of Jesus, because that's the question, like, well, I don't know what He's calling me to do. Let me answer that question for you this morning. It'd be good to go into a new year with some clarity about God's call in our lives, right? He's calling each of us to position ourselves in the lives of people who aren't yet following Him so that one day our friends, our families, our co-workers might become followers of Jesus. If you're wondering, what is the thing God wants me to do? To position ourselves in the lives of people who aren't yet following Him so that one day they might become followers of Jesus. You talk about an impossible task. So if it's not real clear to you exactly what God is calling you to do in other areas of your life, I get that. We wrestle with those kinds of things. You can be certain that He's calling you to share the good news of Jesus with the people in your life. I, I don't think there's anything more boring in the Christian life than staying in the boat. I got everything under control. So perhaps this morning God's trying to get you to move in a direction. And you'll have the opportunity once you've stepped out of the boat to say, Lord, this is not my idea. Remember, my idea was to stay in the boat. You got me into this. Like, I got to trust you now to see you th- this through. And when God has called you, he loves that kind of prayer. He loves that kind of dialogue because you're on the verge of experiencing him in a way that you can experience him any other way. Oh, by the way, I preached those two nights at that convention of Christian high school students in 1996, uh, 95, 1995. And I um, never heard from them again. <laughs> So I don't start my own church. No, I'm just, but five, five years later, I spoke at a similar convention of 600 Christian high school students in South Texas. And I was a keynote for the whole week. So there's that. The challenge for us is that when we say yes, to say yes when we're scared to death, to say yes when we don't seem to have the resources, To say yes when the thing appears to be impossible and intimidating and uncomfortable. The challenge is to not live our whole lives and miss what God wants to do in and through us. Remember, God's will is always accompanied by God's resources. It's always accomplished by His power. Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we are humbled this morning that you choose to use us. You choose to use us in ways that we uh, can't explain or don't always, doesn't always make sense to us. And yet, um, you choose to use us with our limited resources, our limited ability, our limited know-how. Sometimes our less than cooperative attitude and you continue to want to use us to accomplish your purposes, to live out the values of, the, of your kingdom for the sake of the world, for the sake of the people we live with, for the sake of the people we don't know that well yet, but for the sake of people who aren't following you and for your glory. God, I pray as we turn the corner into a new year that we'd be sensitive to these nudgings of your Holy Spirit in our lives. On whatever scale that might be, whether it's the everyday things or one, a big life-changing kind of deal. God, I pray that you would uh, give us sensitivity to that, give us discernment to know when it is the call, it's your voice calling. And then I pray that we would have the courage to just take those first steps to do the thing that we can are able to do, know how to do, and trust that you will do what only you can do. And in that, um, you accomplish your purpose, and we give you glory. In Jesus' name.